Hey folks, Gary Kelly here from gkmedia.ie. This week I decided to turn the table a little bit and focus our discussion more on how we can help employees or people out there looking for jobs. I think COVID-19 has opened our eyes to so many realities and certainly when it comes to one's job you might be realising now that you are happier not doing your job or maybe you've finally witnessed in time of crisis how poor your company leadership is and that it's time to jump from the sinking ship or simply you may feel that the industry you work in will have a limited future in post-COVID-19. So this week we are speaking to career guidance and training expert Liam Horan of Slee Newer Careers. Liam chats to me about finding your key skills, how to prepare for an interview, how to find the right job for you, why it's important to customise your CV, the benefits of having a strong profile on LinkedIn, how self-employed people should approach the jobs market if their business goes under, and what the future of job recruitment will look like. I think for both employees and employers, there's a huge amount of valuable content in the following discussion that will be of help to you. Enjoy. This is a GK Media Podcast. Liam Horan, Managing Director of Slee Newer Careers. Thank you for joining us and Gary Talks today. You're very welcome, Gary. My pleasure. Let's cut straight to the point. Are there many people out there looking for jobs right now? And if so, are there jobs out there? Are we looking at a case of dog eat dog down the road with people trying to get work? I think it's all about the timing. I think at the moment, a lot of people are in a kind of a purgatory whereby they're temporarily laid off, but possibly long-term laid off. They don't know where they are exactly. The government uh, supports have propped up business right now and and people therefore think they're in a job, hope they're in a job, but they're not sure whether that job will last long-term. So we haven't seen the rush of people getting ready for the next phase of their careers just yet. But it, it will happen very soon because the government supports won't last forever. People will read the tea leaves as well and realise, okay, my business is open, the company I'm working for is open, but the trend is going against them now because of post-COVID changes or because they were struggling as it was pre-COVID. I think that the, you know, the, unlike the last downturn um, 10 years ago, where people kind of knew it was over, this sort of stay of execution right now may just string it out for a little bit longer. But my advice to those who are contemplating career change is today is the day to start. You know, don't leave it too late. The old phrase, don't fatten the calf on the morning of the fair, I think applies. In terms of what jobs are out there right now, what we're noticing is that the state bodies, the you know principal jobs, deputy principal jobs in, in uh, schools, and some HSE jobs, some state organizations are recruiting and they're going ahead with interviews. Lots of private companies have put a, have pressed the pause button, though there are some exceptions. But I think, as I said at the outset, this purgatory we're in right now means nobody's fully sure when the next phase starts. But I think there is no doubt there's a very difficult phase coming, a very, very difficult phase. So are we going back to about 50 years when we start telling our younger generation that get a state job, work in the civil service, it's the safest route to take, that the days of being adventurous may be going into the private sector, this may not be the time to do that? Yeah, to a certain extent. I think the tendency among people at time of difficulty is to go back to safe harbour and, you know, state jobs and was one time the junior ex job in the civil service or the good job in the bank as it was known back then people will tend to default back to that 
And that would be particularly true in the west of Ireland, though Galway City and its environs may be an exception. But in other parts of the west of Ireland, in Mayo, where I live, there is a big dependency on state organisations, along with a number of multinationals. Galway City does have a, very, a number of very vibrant sectors, many of whom might recover quickly enough because they're possibly in good sectors, in good markets to recover. Um, but there will be a growing appreciation for you know, the state job, as you call it. That, that's something that's going to come. And if, even if not the state job, what, what happened in the last downturn was people hunkered down and tried to seek shelter in whatever sector they were in, if they could at all. And some people rode out the last recession for four or five years in a job before it finally ground to a halt. And there'd be that tendency as well, that kind of what we have, we hold tendency. I can see the the shutters coming down, down the line, but there's a few years in it yet. Do you know what I mean? And that's where there'll be a bit of that as well, where people will, you know, what we have, we hold. And again, you know, it's horses for courses here. Everybody's personality type is different and whatever what works for me might not work for you. And people need not try and, you know, conform to somebody else's expectation. But as a general rule, based on my experience, particularly of the last recession, and also what I'm reading about some of the um, strategists are saying about what comes next globally, I think we're in for a big period of change. I remember thinking when the last recession kicked off that it would be fascinating to track, say, 200 people who are now doing the jobs they are doing or in the sectors they are in. Where would those people be in five or 10 years' time? Because certainly in our business, we dealt with a lot of people who changed sectors, who went back training. Uh, and for some people, it was a great liberation. For example, I was surprised by the number of people in the construction sector who ended up doing jobs in the caring sector, working in nursing homes, working uh, as special needs assistants, working in all sorts of places where you wouldn't have expected them to turn up and frequently confessing or professing that they were quite happy to have made that change. So it is likely there will be a lot of change. Your own personal attitude to change will be a big determinant of how quickly you adapt and how well you can do in, in the next phase. Just two points there, Liam. One was you were talking about people after the recession, they were holding on to the job for maybe four or five years until ultimately the, the shutters came down. I suppose people are going through a dilemma of possibly my sector won't survive, but I want to hang in there and hold out for a possible redundancy package before I move in to the job sector looking for another job? Or should people just start looking now and and take their eye off the carrot at the end of the stick? Well, it's very hard to give hard and fast advice because that's different for everybody. I think people need to look at their own situations. So by that, I mean, what do you need to survive? What are your major commitments? And that might be in terms of mortgage. It might be loans. Or it might be children about to go to college. It might be children currently in college, for example. So you, you've got to figure out where am I at? Some people will be better set up to make a change because they don't have the commitments other people have, okay? Sometimes change is forced upon you as well, and that's going to happen a lot of people. There are going to be a lot of redundancies. There are going to be a lot of places closing. There are going to be a lot of people put back on shorter hours. There are going to be a lot of changes. And in some cases, you know, I have seen people for whom the dramatic moment of a place closing turned out to be the blessing in disguise. And they sometimes have a sense of that as well. They say to you things like, you know, maybe for the best, right in the middle of all the panic, that maybe I needed to move on anyway. I think your capacity to adapt to change is very different from person to person. But I think in the last 10 years, people did develop that ability. And I think 
those who were around 10 years ago and were in the, the workforce back then will have seen and can look back on their experiences of how they changed, how other people changed, how it didn't turn out to be quite the Armageddon they thought it would be. I was writing a column this morning about this and I was making the point that we probably still don't know how we fully came through the last recession. And maybe we didn't fully come through the last recession. Maybe we were still finding our way out of it. But we still don't fully know how we got to where we got to almost, I would say, because we were looking at a cataclysmic situation then of our banks being the major part of the problem, banks being busted, basically, government not performing well. And without being political this time, and while there are lots of criticisms of the government, they did respond with some speed to the requirements of small and other sized businesses. Now, there are people who say they could have done more, but if you compare it to 10 years ago, it was a much better response. And even though they were a caretaker government or a standing government, the last time this happened, our government was clearly on its last legs, but trying to hold on. This time, they're not necessarily trying to hold on. They're, they're doing a caretaker job. Uh, and I think that that dynamic has helped a bit as well. And I think that that probably has helped so far, but it has created this purgatory effect as well, where it has delayed the day of reckoning, which is going to come. And you know, more than when we try to flatten the curve, maybe delaying it helps it a bit. Maybe it spreads it out a bit. So there isn't just one day where everybody, where everything collapses. I think as a general rule, people should try to get ready for change at the level they can get ready for it. So your comfort zone will change whether you like it or not in many, many cases. And you know to accept that and not to try and resist it uh, to understand that this is the way things are going. So what does that mean in practical terms? You know, I know people who are doing online courses in Photoshop right now to get themselves ready for possibly working at home and online because their current job is not going to survive. And on that, actually, the, the e-college run by Solus, all of their courses are free right now, and they're fantastic courses, very substantial courses, and I'd recommend people to check that out. But it could be, as I said, doing some training, um, networking with people in a different sector, sussing out people in a different sector. It is very much about networking generally, by which I mean staying in touch with people you've worked with before, letting them know you might be looking for something. Can they give you a hand? Can they, can they put a word in somewhere? Those are still key job searching tools, particularly in Ireland and even more so in the west of Ireland, which is you know, a small town, ultimately the west of Ireland. Who you know, who can put a word in for you? Those are still crucial um, factors. Yeah, it reminds me, and I've spoken about it before in the past, of when I got hit personally by the recession in 2013, I was made redundant from a full-time job working in radio six days a week, and I didn't know what to do. I started, again, networking with people, looking for opportunities, and I decided to look back on the things I always wanted to do when I was young and didn't have any fear of doing them. In other words, I wasn't talking myself out of them. So I always enjoyed videos, uh, making videos. I always enjoyed working with people and kind of training them up, even if it could just be helping an elderly person in the community on how to have some IT skills so they could send an email to a loved one over in America or whatever. But I started looking at all the things that I enjoyed and that then actually created what later became a few months later gk media and thankfully touchwood that business is is still running strongly seven years later and it was the fact of then putting the word out there and telling people look this is what i'm doing if you know of anyone who may need any of our services whether it's you know video production web design whatever tell them to get in touch you know there was good karma out there people wanted to see a new young business grow 
And it was a case of reinventing oneself, took me out of my comfort zone. It was scary. It was challenging. But as you were saying earlier as well, I did look back and say that was the best thing that ever happened. It's a a very good observation, Gary. And I think that people sometimes question the value of the little steps they take at the start, which, as you said, might just be helping a local person without IT skills to make a Skype call to their son or daughter in Australia. But they're the steps you have to take. And in some ways, a, a man I respect very highly made the point in the last recession, and I, I refer back to that quite a lot, and I've, I've been doing that a lot lately because I think that's, that is the relevant reference point now. He said at the start of the last recession, people need to not think about finding a job, they need to think about finding a customer. Now, he went on to elaborate that that could ultimately be a job, but it's about finding somebody who will say, thank you, you did a good job there, I might better make a phone call for you. And it's not as transactional or as, you know, whatever the word is, as that. It is genuinely trying to help Uh, But what goes around comes around. And this is not a time to go back into your shell and go into a woe is me mentality. This is a time to get involved in things, be it the network you have neglected of former colleagues, be it your local sports club, whatever they're doing right now. It may just be virtual coaching. It may be a virtual play or, you know, piece of musical theater. Get involved. Keep out there. Keep meeting people. Keep letting people know you're alive and keep letting people know you're positive as well, because ultimately you know, people don't want to feel like you're you're a lost cause. And I'm, I'm conscious here I'm talking about very serious things for people. And I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm drawing my experience of working with people in career change and transition. The things you spoke about there are very relevant. And another point you made that I think is very relevant is that you went back to doing something you knew and liked. And in an ironic way, I see COVID-19 liberating a whole lot of people right now, including myself. I have gone back to doing some things I like doing and doors have opened because I like it. I think I'm good at it. I have contacts in that area. But, you know, for the last 10 years, maybe, as you said, fear, maybe we're worried too much about mortgages and all that kind of thing. But COVID-19 in some ways has liberated a lot of people. Now, that's a generalization that will annoy some people. I don't, I don't mean it that way. But maybe we need these shocks to the system. Maybe we sometimes need to be to question, well, where was I going? There was a very good video recently on social media where a woman says, she said, oh, great, we're back to work. And she listed the 50 things she hates about being back to work. And in, in a very witty way you'd appreciate, they sped up her language as she spoke. So she was roaring, she was speeding at the end of it, talking about traffic jams, standing up in queues for coffee, being away from her children, hanging around with people she doesn't like as opposed to what she's currently doing, walking in the morning, etc. You know, So it has forced people to reevaluate. And I think that one thing I probably won't compromise on is things are changing. You've got to be able to change with them. Don't, don't howl at the moon wishing they weren't changing. They are changing. And a lot of the changes that COVID-19 will bring in, like move towards online, all of that, they didn't just happen two months ago. They were coming anyway. In fact, we had, we had gone well down that road. I spoke to a man the other day whose business was sort of kind of destined to fail because of the way technology was going. And now he knows it's going to fail. And in some ways, he's in a better place than he was three or four months ago where he was denying the fact that it's going to fail. His business ultimately cannot succeed in the new world that's now being created. And that's the way it goes to a certain extent. You know, we can, I sometimes feel that we, we lament the past too much and try too much to try to hold on to something someday that ain't coming back, you know what I mean? Or if it comes back, it'll come back in its own good time or in a different guise. 
And it's more useful uh, if you can say, well, where is this going? And, I, and because of the work I do, I come across that quite a lot. I remember a very perceptive man saying to me some years ago, as we drove down the town, he pointed to the business. He says, you do know that business will be closed in the next two years. And I said, maybe he might get 10 years out. He said, no, he won't. Said, that business will be closed inside two years because these are the factors. And it wasn't rocket science, but he was very clear-minded. We're sometimes not that clear-minded about our careers. We deny, we obfuscate, we procrastinate. And I think COVID-19 will probably root a lot of that out of, the, out of people. What would you say about people doing these online courses then that you spoke about, Liam? Like, do employers see merit in that? Or is it just a way of keeping people occupied while they're waiting for transitioning into the next job? Um, not all courses are born equal. Not all master's degrees are born equal. Not all PhDs are born equal. There is a strong tendency towards courses that are not that accredited. But for example, I was using a bit of technology here this morning and it's quite tricky. And if I could find somebody who has used this technology before, I probably would get them to do some parts of the work I was doing. But it's not in any college course. It's not in any you know, it doesn't form any part of any master, and if it does, it's tucked away. So in the modern world, there is a lot of respect for, you know, take for argument's sake, bookkeeping. You know, you might have done a bookkeeping course, but have you used Sage or have you used Thesaurus? That could be a deciding factor. Do you know what I mean? And it's the same with courses. You know, you, you can you can beef up your skills. You can show an orientation in a certain in a certain area. But also, crucially, you can say to the employer and look them in the eye and say, during COVID-19, when things went quiet for me, I didn't just sit at home twiddling my thumbs. I did some courses because that says a lot about you. Do you know what I mean? It's not just what you learn. It's the fact that you set your mind on learning something. Your question is, is very broad. Like almost everything in career has to be a broad generic question anyway, because every situation is different. Sometimes the employer will absolutely want a master's from in UIG in business analytics. But sometimes they look at uh, things and say, that's interesting. Fair play. Uh, I know personally, I have great interest in what short courses people do because I think it shows what they decided to do when they were given a chance, what interested them. Do you know what I mean? Everybody leaves the UIG with the same degree, more or less. Quite often, yeah. it's what you do afterwards to show that your learning didn't stop the day you walked out of UIG or GMIT that separates you from other people chasing work. And you know the whole CPD industry, the continuing professional development side of things, is huge. And yes, some people are ticking boxes when they do it, but many others are genuinely developing skills that they can use in the workplace or get themselves ready for securing a new job. So I wouldn't underestimate the value of online courses. It, it shows, and they're good tasters as well for fear you want to go and do something else. Do you know what I mean? That I just dip my toe here and see, do I like project management by doing this short course? And if I do, I'll go and do a longer course. So you can show a kind of a pattern of what your decisions were. Yeah, and I suppose following on from what you're saying as well, it's what people do after completing a course. So, for example, we often get CVs in from people who want to do some video work with us or they want to be editors with us. And really, I'm not that concerned on the qualifications that they have or where they went to college. It's their showreel. That's what I want to look at, because then I know quite quickly whether they're good on camera or on editing, sound mixing, whatever it is. I just want to talk about a few sort of emails I've gotten in the past from people looking to work with us. Uh, and then maybe you can give a little bit of advice in the way people should be approaching things. So these are kind of things that annoy me <laughs> in terms of w when people contact me. People would email me 
saying how much they want to work for my company. And then in the same email, there would be 20 other companies CC'd in the email. Another one I don't like, I got this email recently where someone said they were looking for work and I was telling them about some of the projects we're working on, including Gary Talks and just like in the movies. And they came back and they said, I read just like in the movies and I thought it was fascinating, which was surprising for me because just like in the movies is a podcast. I guess I'm looking to see if working for you would be of interest to me. And then a funny one as well is I I mentioned I was working in radio full time back in 2013. I still do work in Galway Bay FM as a freelance producer and presenter now. But another one I'd get is I listen to you on the breakfast show. You're really good. Yet I wasn't on the breakfast show in seven years. (laughs) Flip all of those and don't don't do that. Tommy Cooper went to the doctor and said, doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do that, raising his hand over his head. And the doctor says, don't do that. Uh, 10 years ago, we were in a, in a buyer's market. The employer owned the ball because there was more, you know, supply and demand was on their side. In recent years, particularly in Galway City, where work became more plentiful and people had more opportunities, and, and that's, I don't, I don't mean to be in any way dismissive of that. That was fantastic. And I, I do some work in Galway City. I love the fact that Galway has evolved the way it has, okay? But we're back now closer to 10 years ago where there isn't as much work and where demand or where supply outstrips demand. The specific cases you mentioned there, you know, if you're going to say to Gary Kelly, uh, I really want to work with your company, one, show that through knowledge. Make insightful comments. Say a lot more than what's on his on his website. And don't say inaccurate things. Don't say, I love the fact you do this, or I've read something that's a podcast. All of those are no-nos. And you, know, you as an employer have the reaction all employers would have. You're not prepared. You're not researched. And in fact, I'm a little bit insulted. You want me to give you X amount of money per year and you have the courtesy or the professionalism to go and research my company. One thing I would never do is CC people's email addresses anyway because from GDPR purposes and lots of other purposes, it's not proper. But also, you're basically saying, I'm firing this out to everybody, hoping something will stick. Job searching is much more of a surgical strike. So instead of saying in the pub on Friday night, the pub, do you remember that? Um He's saying, oh, I sent out 25 emails and I got no reply. Well, if you send out CCs, you will get no reply probably. What about saying I sent out two emails this week, but they were very good. They were very focused. They were very targeted. I took Gary Kelly's logo and I put it onto the sleeve of a record to make it look different. Do you know what I mean? I'm a graphic designer. I sent in a showreel that actually was personalized to Gary and talked about something he was doing on his podcast last week. You know, don't go a mile wide sending out everybody with a big broadcast. Go a mile deep with your application. So the errors you're talking about there are so far away from where I feel what people should be trying to do. And particularly in the area you're in, which is a show me, don't tell me area. And you said that yourself. It's not about your qualifications, about your show reel. You know, show me you're a graphic designer. Don't tell me. Show me you're a producer. Show me you're a voiceover artist. Show me you're a presenter. So send me your work. And better again, if you can make that work relevant to my work. And all of this all of this stuff came up 10 years ago. There were a lot of good examples of how people did very creative things to show the employer that they were really tuned into their job and that they really wanted their job. There was an Irish guy called David Wogan who made a video for HubSpot, the marketing company, and he actually did a marriage proposal to, to HubSpot and was very clever. Uh, he wanted to get to HubSpot in Boston he didn't, that didn't work, but he ended up at HubSpot back in Dublin, actually, which is probably better again. He had kind of written off Dublin, but they opened a Dublin outlet. There were people who took out 
the search terms for well-known marketing executives or creative directors. So when creative director John Murphy searched for himself on Google, all of a sudden he sees five sponsored ads. John Murphy, I'm your man kind of thing. And he thought this is really clever because he was an advertising guy, you know what I mean? So think very seriously about who you're applying to. There, are not, there aren't rules when you're applying for jobs. Recruiters have rules, employers have rules, HR people have rules. You don't have to play by those rules. I'm not saying go crazy, but what about catching their attention in a way that they will say, that's impressive, that's good, that's personalized to me, that has looked at our organization. We're a training company. I interviewed a person one day who spoke the whole interview about us being a recruitment company. It hadn't even given a cursory glance at our website. You know, if somebody's going for, for a job in GK Media, what does Gary really like? What's his fa- who's his favorite football team? What's his favorite band? You know, what, what does he value? Can you do something But Gary go, this person has brought creativity, determination, and professionalism to this application. Ergo, they will do the same for my clients. And that puts you, in my view, miles ahead of the opposition. And that's going to be a lot of the determinant of the future. What are you going to do to get noticed? One of the things that I've been reading a lot about lately is what are the key skills of the future? And I, I interviewed some people on a webinar lately. And the ability to build relationships, to communicate, etc., is one of the key uh, skills of the future. Because, you know, the technology is alive now. There's so much technology there. It's how you can sell it to people, how you can mix and match it with other technologies, how you can creatively work all of that and get people to think about it creatively. That's going to be crucial in the future, not just the ability to do the thing, but how you put it to use and how you get people to, you know, come on board with what you're doing. And just before we talk a little bit further about key skills, it may be arrogance, but the thing I don't like when I get these emails from people looking for work is it always has I want or I I need in it. And for me to satisfy their want or their need is going to cost me X amount of euro per year, meaning we need to raise more capital to fulfill their want or their need. Whereas if they can actually sell themselves in the sense of what they can bring to the table, how they can be an advantage to our business, that's the thing that grabs me. So I think, as you were saying, if people just do a little bit more homework and maybe send out two emails a week instead of 25, where they have done that extra bit of research and figured out how they can be an asset to the business, I think it'll be more beneficial. But key skills, Liam, how do people find what their key skills are? I think there's two parts of that. One, if you're looking at career change, if you're saying I'm finished working in this sector, I have to go to a different sector now, you've got to go and explore your key skills. You can work with career professionals. You can do psychometric testing. You can ask friends, what do you think my skills are? If the question is you know, more exploratory about where I might go, may go next, that's where you start. The other one, though, is if you're, if you're in a sector you're applying for a job in that sector, you needn't think as much about your key skills as the key requirements of the employer. So the early part of your CV, which will say key skills, achievements, characteristics, something like that, should actually be a mirror of what the employer is looking for. So if the employer is looking for the following skills, be they soft skills or hard skills, you should try and match that in your CV. And if you find that you can identify 10 key things the employer is looking for, and you can only get three or four of them, you're applying for the wrong job. This is interesting, though, what you're saying, because I suppose what used to happen is someone in Galway would maybe pop into JC Printers, print up 30 copies of their CV, and then walk from the top of 
William Gate Street all the way down to maybe the bottom of Key Street, handing in their CV to a variety of businesses. Whereas what you're saying is you need to customise your CV for each individual job you are applying for. Yeah, you see, it's, it's a bit like being a car salesperson. You know, not everybody wants to buy the same car. If I go down to my local dealers here in Ballinrobe, JJ Burke today and say, I'm going on holidays next soon. Um, I'm going to go camping in France. There's four of us going and we're bringing two dogs and four bicycles, okay? But I want to buy a vehicle now that will stand to me for the next few years. I might do this again next year. And one of the salespeople brings me down the back and shows me a Nissan Micra. It's not such a car anymore. You've got to be meeting the needs of the buyer. The employer is the buyer. What is the employer looking for? So when you're thinking about applying to a company, you start with their needs, not with your career history. Write down what they've identified in the job spec, what you've learned from people who work there, what you've learned from reading their website, from reading their press releases. What matters to this company? And spend ages at that. Spend ages at that. Don't start with your own career. Start with what are the requirements of the employer in this role? And then work back from there. And what will happen there as well is people sometimes say, God, I'd forgotten the fact that I did that before. Do you know what I mean? That we get so preoccupied by and large with what's recent in our career, um, but relevance is more important than chronology. You may need to go back 10 years to find the most relevant piece of experience for the next employer, because this employer may want somebody who has introduced a product to a new territory before, a salesperson. You may not have done that for 10 years, but 10 years ago, you may have got a job as the first person bringing this product to the West of Ireland. Now that matches the needs of the employer. So you knocked on doors, you were in virgin territory, and you built up a product. So we need to get away from chronological, slavish chronicling of our own careers and get back to the employer has published a manifesto or I've devised a manifesto from this employer or a wish list the employer has. How, how well can I match that? If there are 10 points in that list, can I get to seven of them and elaborate on those seven? If I can only get to three, I'm going for the wrong job. And that's something that's going to come up now very soon as well, is people going for the wrong job. It's demoralizing. It's time consuming. Don't do it. Try and go for jobs you have a chance of getting. But it's your job to show the employer in your application how you meet their requirements. Have you come across people who may have been in a job for 10, 15, 20 years and are now having to go out there and look for jobs possibly in a completely different sector? Yes, that would be quite common. And we would have worked with a lot of people who are trying to make the transition into that sector as well, or trying to decide what that sector actually is. You know, where might I go next? What am I, what am I good for? And changing sector requires you to work harder. You've got to think about the employer. In all likelihood, very soon, the employer is going to have 40 or 50 people going for jobs where maybe six months ago, there were only five or six people going for a job, okay? So the employer... The power is going to go back in the employer's hands. I'm talking about those employers that will still stand after this. And you can't just rock up with the CV and hope that the employer, acting like a clairvoyant, can spot something good in that CV. If you want to let the employer show that, while I haven't worked in your sector before, the things that value that are valued in your sector are attention to detail, teamwork, and ability to work antisocial and irregular hours, okay, because it's weekend shifts, etc., I showed all of that in my last job. In my last job, I worked nights or I worked Saturdays and Sundays. So now the employer, while you might not, while you might not have the hard skills built up for the job, you have a lot of the behavioral stuff for the soft skills built up that 
will transfer into the job. Do you know what I mean? So the employer can say, well, we can train this person up. And if we get them trained up, they won't have a problem working weekend because they've done that before. So you've got to identify, again, it's, it's, the, same, it's the same theory I talked about a moment ago, but it's going to be, you've got to work harder at it. Identify what the employer values. What have you got that meets that? So a typical scenario I would deal with would be somebody maybe got a construction business and the business went south in the last downturn. And now all of a sudden they're looking for a job uh, in some other field. And they say, what did I ever do? All I ever did was a plasterer, you know? But that plasterer may have priced work, may have dealt with customers, may have recruited staff, may have trained staff, may have disciplined staff, you know, may have been involved in some account work, may have been involved in adhering to health and safety, you know, other legislative stuff as well. So all those skills and experience, all that experience might translate to another sector, even if the core thing is not there. Don't expect the employer or the recruiter to act like a talent scout. You've got to identify the skills they want you want them to see and serve it up early on in your CV and early on in your cover letter. So if someone's working in a certain sector at the moment and they feel, look, this isn't really going to survive post-COVID-19, or maybe it may survive, but it's going to struggle dramatically in the new normal. Can these people go to you and say, look, Liam, this is what I did for the last X number of years. These are the sort of things I did on a day-to-day basis. Help me, what sort of sector should I be looking to head into next? Yes, our business does that. I don't do as much of it now as I used to do, Um, but our business does that. I have a number of people who do that. And that's a whole process, as they say, where you, you look to yourself, you identify your skills, you look to the barriers that might stop you from making a change. Sometimes people turn over that stone and think about career change and realize while they're turning over the stone, I can't really afford the time or the money to do this. You know, I've got to stay on this, maybe even a sinking ship, but I've got to stay on it for another while because I just right now can't make that change. Of all the services we provide in Sleenua Careers, that's the trickiest one. Because it's not just interview training or writing a CV or doing a LinkedIn profile, which is a finite thing. Career change is very demanding. It can be very challenging. People can start and stop. I've done it myself a few times. I know how I change. By and large, I change relatively slowly. But out of the blue, sometimes then I'll accelerate my change. Do you know what I mean? You can only make the change yourself. We, we provide people who facilitate that and will help you through that. But we always say to people... This is done at your pace, not ours. There's no pressure on you. You've got to figure out, based on all the factors that feed into your life right now, as I said, money, location, etc., maybe health, other things, access to transport, childcare. You've got to figure out all of those with our help and make your own plan. You know, career change, particularly career change that you volunteer to go through can be tricky. Ironically, when career change is forced upon you by the closure of your business, for example, Sometimes those people make the next, get to the next phase quicker because they have no alternative. A typical scenario is somebody stays on the sinking ship or the ship that no longer appeals to them because it's the devil you know. But everybody's different. Uh, and we, we will see a lot of that. We will see a lot of change in, in people and what people do in the next few years. And in, in my view, those who are really clever are already addressing that in, in whatever way they can. You mentioned that you also help people with interview trainings and how to conduct themselves in an interview. 
One question which is always niggling in the back of people's heads, maybe not always, but certainly quite a few brought it up with me there over the last few days when I said that I would be speaking with you this weekend on Gary Talks, was the question of how do I ask a potential employer about the salary when it wasn't mentioned in the job advertisement? I would say that your focus as a candidate should be on getting the job or giving the employer reasons to offer you the job, okay? The negotiation for the salary can come later. Now, there is one weakness in this. You don't want to be going for jobs that are never going to pay you well enough. But by and large, we have a general idea of what jobs pay, okay? But if you feel it's a job you'd like to do and you think it might be in the ballpark, I would focus initially on trying to impress the employer with your application and in the first interview on making the employer really want you, okay? The primary reason for that is that there's no point negotiating a a salary for a job you haven't been offered. Secondly, I have seen companies shift quite a bit when they were offered the right person. Companies said, no way will I pay more than €35,000 for this. All of a sudden, they're paying €43,000 for the right person. You've got to really make them want you, okay? You've got to really focus in the interview on understanding the role, what the requirements are, how I meet that role, uh, you know, how I meet the requirements of the role. I've had very few cases of where people have been put to the pin of their collar in a first interview to negotiate. And I know of one particular person thinking on their feet when the employer brought it up a second time in the interview, he said, well, are we negotiating for the job now? Have I, are you going to offer me the job kind of with a, with a playful smile on their face? And the employer backed off and probably realized, yeah, fair enough. It's not, people are not ready for negotiation this early in the, in the, in, in the process, okay? It's different mm-hmm. when you're called to second interview and clearly it's different when you're offered the job. But it's the cart before the horse, I think, to worry too much about salary. And I'd try to leave that negotiation for the phone call after being offered the job. Or when you're called to second interview, you can say then, well, do you mind me asking what the salary is? Because you don't want to give any more time to it than is necessary. But yeah. I would certainly try and make them make them want you, first of all. And what about looking at a company where you have room to grow in the sense that there's a ladder system there so you can eventually scale up the ladder, increase your wages. Is is that something that employees should focus on? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is the employer is, is, is generally hiring for the current position. And you need to be careful about casting your eye over the fence too much to the next part of the organization. You know, in an interview, your focus is on proving I can do this role. That's the problem they have today. And the person interviewing you might not have any interest in what happens up the ladder. They may be at their level and they want to make sure they've got the best person for their level. So focus predominantly on proving that you're the person for the role that's advertised. There is no harm in saying, however, I think I can offer a lot to this company down the line. But I would temper that fairly quickly by saying, but I'm conscious that that comes later. My first job is to get the job and then prove to you my value in this role. You don't want the employer, when you leave the room, saying, oh, they're in a hurry out of this job. They're, only, they're watching up the ladder only. You know, that's, and play that one fairly right. It's enlightened companies realize when they're hiring a person today that they're effectively hiring a future manager of the company in theory. Do you know what I mean? But that's not what's on their mind today. So focus on what's on their mind today. That's the problem they have today. This is, this is what they're being asked to do is fill this position today. And, you know, I would be giving 80%, 85% of the interview to that. No harm to show a bit of ambition. No harm to show that you have other things to offer. But don't try and get Thursday's job on Wednesday. You know what I mean? Get Wednesday's job on Wednesday. 
a friend of mine had a business for years in Galway and it was one of those sectors that was affected after the recession and she ended up closing down her business and then she went into college. She was in her 40s at this stage and a few years later she came out of college with a master's and then she started looking for jobs and she couldn't get a job anywhere. And when she showed me her CV, I told her to remove a certain number of qualifications that she had on her CV and sure enough, she got a job two weeks later and she she kept that job for two years until she set up another business is there a problem where employees could be overqualified for a position? Yeah, that, that there can be that perception. And I always think it's one of the sadder ends of the market, so to speak, that an employer should have the ability to assess somebody on the basis of the, what they have to offer. And they've turned up here today. You know, they've applied for this role. They hopefully have articulated in the, in the interview or in the CV why they want this role. And an employer should have the capacity to see beyond that. Now, the, the employer's real issue is, what's known as the flight risk. If we employ this person today and they're wonderful, etc., but they'll be gone in six months when something better comes along, you know? You've got to address that in your cover letter, got to address it in the CV. If it's true that you genuinely want this job, you want to progress within this company, etc., you've got to make that very clear. You've got to assuage their fears of you being a flight risk. And that can be difficult to do. I, have, I see that quite a lot where what I would consider to be a very, very good candidate doesn't get the job, and based on my research and knowing a bit about the company, etc., my only conclusion is that they probably feel they're overqualified, which I think is a synonym for they're a flight risk. And if that's the case that your friend is in, you've got to work really hard. The solution you give her of removing the the uh, qualifications might be one way of doing it, actually. But it, you know, I suppose I'm generally of the view that education isn't a burden, but certainly in an interview. I would possibly introduce those and say, you know, this demonstrates my determination, my commitment, all this kind of thing that, you know, these are all transferable. Do you want somebody who never bothered doing extra courses? Do you want somebody who never bothered going back to college? Do you know what I mean? That these are great attributes, but you've got to sell that attribute to the employer. It's the same as a self-employed person coming out of self-employment can be judged harshly in the employment world as somebody who can't be taught anything, that they're too headstrong, that they're, they've been their own person for 10 years now, you won't be able to teach an old dog new tricks. That person coming out of self-employment must also assuage that in the interview, must also address that voluntarily and say, I know you may feel that as a self-employed person, I'd be impossible to manage. Let me tell you what I've learned about, self, about myself in self-employment. I'm very determined. I've got great skills with customers. I'm this, I'm that. So you've got to... At all times in the employment, in the job-seeking, promotion-seeking world, you've got to try and craft the profile the employer sees. You've got to show them what you want them to see. I want you to see this take on my profile, not that take on my profile. And if you leave it to the employer, chances are they'll draw a negative conclusion. Do you know what I mean? You've got to craft that as best you can. So when you leave the room and they're having a chat and someone says, oh, I think uh, he'll be impossible to manage. He's been self-employed for 10 years. Somebody will say, well, no, he, he understands that. He addressed that. He says, what about all these things that self-employment has given him? So it's, it's always about what is the employer looking for and how can I show the employer that I have the attributes, etc., that they're looking for? Personally, I think self-employed people um, are great to employ, but you've got to understand their nature. They can be a bit impulsive. They can be a bit dogmatic. But they have balancing things like drive, they get up early in the morning, they'll work harder, they'll figure out a solution. 
they won't be by the book as much. But that self-employed person has got to portray that image to the employer. And you mentioned that you help people improve their profile on LinkedIn. Is it worth applying for a job via LinkedIn? Yes, LinkedIn, it hasn't, to my mind, grown to the level it might have. I would have thought 10 years ago it was going to take over the world. But more and more companies are advertising via LinkedIn. So you'd be asked to submit your LinkedIn profile. Uh, and that, that's quite common now. There are other you know, models of, of recruitment as well, but that's quite a common one. What you will find is that employers are checking LinkedIn profiles. So if you apply for a job, I would say six or seven times out of 10, the, the employer will, or the recruiter will check your LinkedIn profile. Also, recruiters are scanning LinkedIn. They're recruiters of the premium LinkedIn to go and find candidates. So in some sectors, candidates get regular contact from recruiters who have seen their LinkedIn profile. The whole world of um, how people apply and get noticed um, is changing and will change even more so. I would have thought it would have changed more by now. For example, I predict the CV's demise is imminent. However, we've all been predicting that for 10 years at this stage. I think LinkedIn is the obvious place to take over from the CV. But to my mind, it hasn't really done that either. But it's still a big, it's still a big factor. In time, I think we will have, and we already have, but we'll see more incidents of kind of scraping technology that will say, okay, your name is Gary Kelly, and this will bring up 25 relevant pieces of information about you, and we'll assess that information. So Facebook know more about us than we know about ourselves. Our profile that we're trying to create by LinkedIn or by our websites or by our CVs will someday soon be trumped by the profile that technology generates, whether you like it or not. Do you know what I mean? So how was Cambridge Analytics so successful? Because they could successfully predict based on Facebook posts where people were in the voting spectrum. And they were able to identify those who were on the teetering on the brink, who could be brought from Democrat to Republican or from yes to no. Do you know what I mean? That's the knowledge that technology is now accumulating. And someday, relatively soon, I, I, I can't believe it's not here already, technology will do a lot of the recruitment profile formation, whatever you want to call it. Fascinating discussion, Liam. Thanks a million for joining us on Gary Talks this week. Uh, for people who are listening to this podcast and are considering maybe changing direction or trying to look for a role in the same sector but with a different business, what can you do to help them? Well, we can, we can help them kind of from the cradle to the grave without being <laughs> dramatic about it. We can help them if they, if they need their CV revamped. We can help them if they need interview training mock interview, LinkedIn profile enhancement, be that in terms of search engine within LinkedIn or repositioning themselves uh, within sectors. We can also help them if they're at that big career crossroads that they're looking at complete change, whether they're there voluntarily or they're there because their current sector is collapsing. That moment of, oh my God, what am I going to do next? Or I want to change, I'm not happy where I am. Um, so basically anything to do with your career uh, we can help you with any, any at any stage in your career. We can help you with, including mentoring within a job. If you want to somebody you can talk to every three months to see how you're doing within your own career, that kind of thing as well. Or any type of coaching or training or writing within the career world, we do it. And we're on slino at careers.com. Yeah, and you're all over 
Ireland. You've offices all over Ireland and a testimony as well that I have to say on behalf of Slee New Careers as a friend of mine did a few mock interviews with you and they went in thinking that they were a 10 out of 10 and they realized after the first mock interview that they were three out of 10 but they were fully confident after doing a couple of mock interviews and they're a 10 out of 10 and their confidence level, their knowledge, knowing how to prepare for an interview, knowing how to answer, knowing when to stop talking and all that. They were astounded. I mean, they thought, honestly, they thought they were the bee's knees before they did the mock interview and they quickly learned within a few minutes (laughs) that they were way, way, way behind. But thankfully you turned them around. Yeah, that's good to hear. We all probably think we're better than we are at some things until we put ourselves to the test. And also, you know, mock interviews are not things, interviews are not things people do every day. It's like you're doing your job for years and all of a sudden you have to stop and describe yourself and describe your career. It's a different discipline. And frequently the best people are the worst at describing themselves because they, they take so much for granted. They make light of how good they are. They don't realize that the things they do automatically almost are actually powerful. They kind of take them for granted. Great stuff. Liam Horan, Managing Director of SleenewaCareers.com. Thank you for joining us in Gary Talks. My pleasure, Gary. Thank you for having us along. Thanks again to Liam for giving us so much great advice and so much of its time. As always, please follow GK Media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn. Gary Talks is on Instagram. And most importantly, please subscribe to this podcast. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, TuneIn and all other major streaming podcast platforms. Stay safe. Stay sane.